Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. What is up? It's a gold fam. Happy Monday. Hope you all had an incredible weekend and are getting ready for a great week ahead. Today, my guest is Sean Hitchens, the author of The Light Stream Beneath It and A Brief History of Oversharing. His one-man show, Ginger Nation, toured extensively before being filmed in concert. Hitchens is an award-winning entertainer, writer, personality, and creator of live performance. Sean has lived through significant loss. Sean's soulmate and ex-husband, Matt, died unexpectedly, and five months later, a tumultuous but passionate relationship ended abruptly when his partner died to suicide. The light stream beneath it, coming out October 12th, explores grief, love, sex, community, and the beautiful absurdity of being alive from a queer perspective. In his book, Sean shows incredible vulnerability as he chooses to open up instead of shut down. This was an incredibly meaningful podcast for me, and I'm so excited to share it with you guys. In this book, Sean shows incredible vulnerability as he chooses to open up instead of shut down. As a comedian, the book is also very much about learning how to be funny and see humor in things after tragedy. This episode was really important to me. It really hit home for me, and I'm really excited to share it with you. Sean opens up and is so vulnerable, so authentic, so real, and we dive into loss and how significant loss can really impact your life and how to navigate and move forward after loss. So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode. Sean Hitchens, thanks so much for coming on the Bits of Gold podcast today. Uh, thanks for having me. Excited to have you on. So I'm not really sure where to start this one, <laughs> but let's, let's bring it back wherever you want to start, wherever you want the beginning to be of your story. Oh my gosh, my story. My story starts, like how far back do we want to go? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you want to just give a little background on a little bit about you, the most recent book that you've come out with, okay. and yeah. we'll dig from there. Okay, so I'm a comedian and a writer uh, from Toronto. I've been in the performing arts since I was 15 and always sort of entertained an audience and I've always been sort of very out and in your face comedian about my queer experience. And a couple, now going on almost three years, three years ago, I had this inc- like tragic life reorientation where everybody around me was either sick or my ex husband died in an accident. And my fiance, David, ended up dying suddenly as well as a result of suicide. And so my career crumbled, my family crumbled, and most oddly enough, my story started crumbling. And I've always been a storyteller. So I've had to, in my recovery, 
start learning to tell new and different stories and maybe not to hide my experience or shield my experience in an entertainment lens, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah. I'm just curious as it relates to, you know, being a comedian, you obviously define yourself as a writer. You just wrote a memoir. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been comedian for? Uh, I started doing Second City in 2002. So that's almost, oh God, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I always, always used comedy as a way of dealing with, you know, whatever life threw at me. And then I quickly learned that I could make a career out of it. And so I started in improv and then I turned to stand up and then I turned to cabaret, which was a very odd turn. And then it turned into writing articles and essays and then books. And now this is my second book. I'm just curious as it relates to the comedy side. Yeah. I think a lot of people do have dreams and aspirations to pursue stand-up comedy. Being a comedian, I know multiple people who have like gone down that path <laughs> after college or in college and they're like, hey, I want to tinker with this over here, see if I can make something of it. Right. Did that just come naturally to you? And at what point did you realize that that was like the, the thing you wanted to pursue? I was in a situation where it just worked right off the top. Like, you know, a lot of people struggle in comedy and, you know, like, I just got to get some, I just got to get my five minutes. I just got to get my five minutes. I quickly had five minutes and that turned into an hour. And <laughs> when my comedy career started really taking off is when Facebook like was first like introduced and you could easily pack a theater. So I just started like renting theaters and bringing audiences in and I could do, by the end of it, I could do 60 minutes, but I couldn't do five minutes anymore. Mm. So it's not a glamorous, <laughs> but it was fun. It was fun to do in my 20s and 30s. I don't know. I don't know. I The idea of going into a comedy club at this point, I don't know. <laughs> I'll hide behind my computer and type. <laughs> got it. Got it. So your memoir, it's coming out October 12th. Yeah. So like two weeks from now. Uh-huh. The light stream beneath it. Let's talk about, I guess, what pushed you to write this? How'd this come about? Hmm. This came about because I started suffering. Well, I, I was on a contract to write a book that my publisher uh, like exercised. That, hey, we're going to get you to do a second book. And I was like, okay, great. And then it was originally supposed to be a book of comedic essays <laughs> about tenderness between men, a vulnerability. And instead, I was in such a state of grief, and I was also suffering from post-traumatic stress, that the writing became a way of me putting together a timeline, because I started experiencing flashbacks and interruptive, like, sort of loops, and I lost a sense of time. Like when did certain things happen? And it was all sort of sort of like a grilled cheese. And so I just started with a timeline of like what happened, then what happened, then what happened, then what happened until it sort of made a beginning, middle and an end. And then I could go in and sort of flush it out and start writing on top of that. Mm. So, you know, obviously I haven't had the luxury of reading the memoir, but I'm assuming you cover a lot of the loss and, and your own grief journey in there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Maybe I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about your first loss. And if you don't mind taking us on the journey of both your losses, and I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So Matt and I were together for six and a half years. And then we did sort of the Gwyneth Paltrow, Chris, what's his name from uh, Coldplay? Chris Martin, is that his name? Am I getting that right? Maybe. maybe. Like the conscious uncoupling, that sort of thing, (laughs) where we just needed our relationship, the rules of our relationship to sort of change and morph. But we still wanted to remain like family. And so we made a commitment to like eat supper every week here on end after we split up. And we just kept that connection growing. And, you know, there was that window where we thought we were going to be back together. And our community thought like, okay, there's going to be like, they're just going to come back together. And then we just sort of said, no, this actually works. And we started moving forward and Matt started seeing someone new. And I flew to California to meet with the studio and met David, who was a former principal dancer for the Martha Graham company and like electric. And I was like, oh my gosh, now I'm going to totally moved my life to California. Then Matt had an accident, a fire-related accident. And overnight, I just sort of woke up in the morning to this phone call and was called to the hospital. And we had to do an end-of-life ritual. And that started like a breakup in reverse. All of a sudden, our cat came back. And Matt had provided for me in his absence and is, you know, if something should happen for him and then, you know, started the obituary writing and then started navigating various relationships, you know, with his family and his community and his new boyfriend and all of this. It was a lot. And also my ambiguous relationship with Matt, like, who was this to me? Who was this man? And ultimately, Matt was my family. So I'm not only dealing with the loss of him, but the loss of my family, because queers, we lose our families, really. Some of us lose, I shouldn't say all of us. I lost my family very early because when I came out, my family left. They were like, it's time for you to go. And so I was 18 and I left the farm, like a typical coming out story. And I had to build this life. And so that's what queers do is that we just recreate family. And so Matt was part of that family. He was that family. And so I lost it overnight. Wow. So you didn't know it was an accident and he passed away overnight? Yeah. Yeah. The accident happened the night before I got the call in the morning and then I had to go to the hospital. And then, yeah. Yeah. I was with him when he passed, which was beautiful, which is really odd to say now, like how can the worst moment of your life be beautiful and comforting, but that is the gift of being present for your loved one as they're passing. Yeah. You know, there is that comfort that comes in that knowledge and that lesson. So it sounds like, you know, I don't know how much you want to open up here, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like in terms of your relationship, you were split apart, but you had come to some sort of a, a way of being together that worked for you guys. Yeah. 100%. Matt and I, we knew that we were going to like grow old together. We didn't know what that would look like or how that would look like. Did that make it more challenging when he was, uh, was was he in the hospital before he passed? Yeah, he was in the hospital when he passed. So did that make it, did it make it more challenging because you weren't like actually together or, or it was still 
Like, I'm just curious as it relates to your relationship at that point. Like, it just sounds like a little bit messy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit complicated. It, it was definitely messy. And the messiness of it is that humans are not pieces of a pie, right? When someone passes, you don't get an eighth of that person, right? Like it's not something that you you divide out. It's your relationship to that person is a whole relationship. Mm. And so you really have to, I don't want to say, be very centered in knowing your relationship to that person and that your relationship intersects others, but it isn't dependent on another person. Mm. Does that make sense? Or have I gone full woo on you? <laughs> no, no, I, I think I understand. It's really interesting to me because I think also, and I don't know if this resonates or if this was something you experienced, but, mm. and I've had so many people on my show come on who have opened up, shared about their own loss. I know before we got on, I had mentioned I lost my, mm. my dad when I was 20 and my mom when I was 25 years old. And I'm curious, did anyone discredit your own loss and your own grief because you weren't together because this was your ex-husband or not at all? Hmm. Matt's family was incredibly generous. Hmm. That's amazing to hear. Yeah. I think that like this idea of love is binary and that at Matt's memorial, I remember because the big question about Matt and I was like, what would our wedding look like? And we could never envision what our, our wedding would look like. You know, it was always like, oh, but then do I have to include my like my birth family? You know, like that's complicated. Like who is there to witness? And then you're like, what, what's the cost of this? And when I was at Matt's, I was sitting there, you know, like navigating people, their grief, you know, being that sort of Sherpa to like around and you know, the hugging person, the person who says, it's okay, don't worry, everything's okay. You know, the comforter. But I was sitting there in this beautiful venue going, why aren't weddings more like this? Where everybody comes to a funeral with a story, with their own relationship in honor of that relationship. And that's sort of the way that Matt's family just dealt with it. Mm. Like it's, it was the fullest expression of Matt that I saw. Right. Got it. Cause everybody was there. It's like, I had a, like a 10 year window of Matt. I came with my 10 years of knowledge. His public school teacher was there. She came with her knowledge of Matt, you know, the aunts, the cousins, everybody came with their relationship of this person. And it's almost like you assemble this. Mm. It's the fullest expression of a person. And then it just goes away again. Yeah. How do you navigate your own life, I guess, after, after he had passed? Oh, absolute devastation. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like every transformer in my body had blown. It felt like, like a hurricane and a tornado and all of these events had happened at once. And so I was in just in crisis mode. The only thing I could really do was take comfort in symbology and metaphor and read a lot of poetry. And I, I went down the yoga, uh, yoga every day. I was already in therapy, but I went from like one session a week to two to three sessions a week and got myself to a place where I wasn't managing second by second, but I started managing like minute by minute. I think you might 
understand this. Yeah. You just sort of stop clocking yourself of like, am I doing okay right now? Am I doing okay? And then you just allow moments to just be. And so I got myself up to like a place where I could just be okay, but not, not great. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. What were you doing for work at the time? Well, that was the funny thing is that in the entertainment industry, I was just like, okay, uh, you know, I need to keep working. I need to do this. And then my agents were like, why don't you go like antiquing? Like, why don't you fly to Palm Springs and go antiquing? And I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. So it's taken three years for like work to start trickling back because got it. we haven't even gotten to David yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can start to to shift into into that. But before then, I guess, was there a moment or a turning point in your own grief journey where things started to become more okay, where you started to be able to live back to whatever the new normal would be? Mm, yes. I think that somewhere around three, like the fourth month, I was like, okay, I haven't died yet. I'm doing okay. I started this weird practice of like, Matt died at 538 and it just became this number in my head. And so every day at 538, I would just sort of like go outside. I'd try to find the sun if it was there in the winter. And I would just allow myself to like feel the sun on my face as a practice of being like vulnerable of saying like, this is where my body ends. This is where the sun is. And that sort of became this practice that it, that was keeping me going every day. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say, I have not died yet. Yeah. Is that like a subtle reminder that, hey, I'm still alive. I'm okay. Life's good. Like, what, yeah. what, what is that to you? I am in a place where I know that I defied every like statistic in terms of someone with complex bereavement, in terms of someone of a queer identity, of being a white male above the age of 40, that I didn't end up in the hospital, that I didn't die is a real thing that I sit with and it becomes it's it shifted from survivor's guilt to a, a weird feeling of gratitude I can understand that I mean for me I resonated when you said that because from losing my parents so young it sort of opened up this world to me that hey like death is a very real part of life and yeah it is it's funny because obviously you know everyone knows the only guarantee in life, once you make it into this earth, mm. once you defy those odds and you're here, yeah. is that you're going to die. Yeah. And <laughs> you don't really think about it. You know, you really don't think about it on an everyday basis yeah. for sure. But even, you know, on a, on a weekly or a monthly basis, you're usually not thinking, hey, death will be a part of my life and it can strike at a minute's notice. Yep. But I'd say really, when I lost my dad, that was like the takeaway, the learning point for me. The way I made meaning of this is, Life is short. Life is precious. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful to be here, alive, healthy, able. Right. When my mom died, that's when like the rug was swept out from underneath me once again. Mm -hmm. Like my mom died five years after my dad died. The way I was sort of describe it is like just as I was clawing my way back to some form of normalcy, mm -hmm. the world punched me in the face and threw me right back down again. Yeah. But in that experience, I learned just like, I say it to a lot of people pretty frequently, but because of what I lived through, I have this constant awareness of how 
just how how crazy, how fragile, how precious our time is. Yeah. And like literally, it might sound so so simple, but like every morning when I wake up and I'm just able to like put my two feet on the, the floor. Yeah. And I'm not worried or stressed or thinking about, you know, both both my parents died from cancer. I'm not thinking about the white blood count, red blood count, what test someone has. The fact that I'm just able to like put my feet on the ground and like go about my day, I'm already winning. I'm already ahead. Yeah. And I think from when my parents had died, it definitely made me hyper aware around just death and that there are no guarantees, even yeah. for me as someone that's 28 years young. So, you know, it, when you said I'm alive, I'm not dead yet, I think it's a very powerful reminder. And I think actually there's there's a lot of gold in, in that statement mm. that someone who, who's going to listen to this can take away and apply in their own life. Yeah, it's that first morning cup of coffee that gets me. Like I go to bed excited for that first cup of coffee. <laughs> you know, I've always loved coffee, but there's just something about it that I, I get to have one more cup of coffee. And it's really odd to come out of this experience and just say that life is good, right? You know, like yeah. I, I can lose two loves back to back, lose a little bit of my mind, recover, and say that life is good. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I would even maybe take it a step further. It's like the fact that, you know, you said you go outside, you feel the sun beating down on your face. Yeah. There's a lot of beauty in that. And that's, it's like, life's great. You know, yeah. like I sometimes think about other people. I remember I have a very vivid memory. My mom was sick in the hospital. Things weren't going well. I've already sort of accepted that mm. she was sick for two months in the hospital for those two months. And I've already accepted that she was going to die. There was no happy ending to this story. And I'm feeling really beat up. And that moment in time, I didn't really feel like there was a point to keep living. Right. And I get in the hospital, in the elevator in the hospital, and in walks a little girl. And she has an IV. She might have been, I don't know, seven, eight years old. Mm -hmm. She was really young. And no hair. She has an IV drip, carrying it with her in. Her parents are next to her. And... I think about that little girl a lot because it, in that moment, it was like such a reminder that like my mom's sick, she's dying, but this little girl was robbed mm. of the innocence of like her childhood. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, like my dad died when I was 20 up until that point in my life. I didn't even know that like death was never a part of any thought conversation, anything like that. I'm like, mm -hmm. life is good, man. You know, like life, mm -hmm. life is great. Yeah, I'm so grateful to be, in the situation that I'm in, even with my mom sick and dying, because mm. I'm looking at this little girl who has her entire childhood taken right from her. I don't know what was wrong with her. I don't know what happened to her or what she was battling, but it's just like in that moment, I was like, I'm so lucky. Yeah. I think the hard thing for me in sort of like processing things is that understanding that gratitude is like a paradox, right? You can't have the good without the bad. And yeah. I think a lot of people understand gratitude from an Instagram point of view, where it's like, you know, like, I got a new card. I, I got a new car. Hashtag grateful. And you're like, mm, <laughs> mm. <laughs> I don't know if that's actual gratitude. <laughs> like, you have to, in order to hold the good, you have to hold the bad. And you just yeah. have to it's this balancing act of like looking, it's not positive thinking. It's just knowing that 
that your body was able to carry the grief, that your body was able to process the loss, right? That you, like, I felt the loss of Matt and David in my body. It wasn't some rational thing. Like, my chest burned for a year. My, my ribs, after David died, just went numb. And so I got David's name tattooed on my, my ribs. My, my lips went numb. I, like, like, that was the, the, like, the depths of which I felt it. Mm. So when I get to feel the sun on my face or when I get to drink the coffee or when I get to feel my feet on the floor, that comes with a knowing of like, also my chest burned. Also my, my ribs burned. Also my lips went numb. Also like, does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think you really understand gratitude now as a result of what you lived through as opposed Mm -hmm. to like life before these losses? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird thing. Cause I, I think about like, you hear it a lot, but there's like life before there's life after mm-hmm. similarly for, for both of us, there's like life before life after, and then life before again, then life after again. Yeah. And maybe like before my dad died, I probably would have been one of those people who are like new car, hashtag grateful. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Look, look at all this good stuff that's happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> look, look at all these <laughs> material things. And it, it's also like until you've cleaned out two, like I cleaned out two men's apartments. Mm. And once you realize that when you leave, it's just stuff. It's stuff. It becomes, I don't want to say that I've lost my material connection to the world. I just have a different relationship to it. Yeah. Right. The things that really matter probably matter a whole lot in your life. And yeah. Maybe the things that you once thought mattered are not so significant anymore. Yeah. And it's, and it is very hard because I feel like, you know, I, I had a very strong ego before Matt and David died and it was just like, just eviscerated mm. and which, you know, I'm grateful for, but it, I also have no idea who I am anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I don't know. Like I navigate the world and go, okay, that's something I used to do. No, it, it doesn't work for me anymore. On Sunday mornings, I go and I take this form of contemporary dance called Gaga, which is like, is this group of like people just, sort of, it's not ecstatic dance, but it's this like healing dance that was developed in Israel. And I'm like, okay, this is what I do on Sundays. Mm. You know, I have taken up cycling and hiking and... Those are the things that matter because it, I really had to sit and go, what are my values? Mm-hmm. And I've never, I never sat in that conversation. What are the things I value? And my friend Jeffrey said to me, the best way to locate your values is to look at the actions that bring you like that you want to make, you know, hiking, cycling. These are the things that bring me so much joy now. Mm. I think after you you live through significant loss, mm-hmm. and this is something that I've really been thinking about a lot recently, mm-hmm. you couldn't possibly be the same person that you were before. No. It's literally impossible to think you'd be the same the same person, speaking specifically like before my dad died and after because it's such a – there's no gray. It's just like so black and white. There was like the innocent childlike kid at 19 years old. Mm-hmm. who knew nothing, 
who had such a, I don't want to say a cloudy view on the world, but just like what I thought was once very important. I see how insignificant those things were. Yeah. And then there's the person after as a result of the growth that came after my dad had passed Mm. of self-discovery of Mm. sitting down with the pain and really trying to figure out after experiencing something so painful, Mm -hmm. what's this thing life all about, Yeah, you know? And obviously, you know, not to say that I have the answers, but I think the thing that changed the most for me personally after my dad had passed is just every day I wake up and I actually almost use death as like a, as a tool now. Mm -hmm. And I say, knowing that I too am going to die, Mm -hmm. how do I want to spend my limited time on earth? Yeah. And that's sort of how I've continued to map my life. And when my mom died, that was like, like I had mentioned before, you get punched again Mm -hmm. and you realize, hey, what I was mapping to before or this idea of, you know, knowing that I too am going to die. How do I want to spend my time? You have to be laser like focused on (laughs) thinking about that because it's such it's just such a truth. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who live their life somewhat like with the chicken with their head cut off and they're floating around trying different things. Mm-hmm. or just like going through the motion as opposed to like truly living with a lot of intentionality. Mm-hmm. When I see a couple sitting at a table at a restaurant together and they're both on their Instagrams mm. and I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> no, you have a lesson coming towards you. You have a lesson <laughs> coming towards you. I will never sit at a table with someone I've chosen to sit at a table with and look at my phone. right it's a good rule to live by right like be present like you know i get every now and then having to cool down a conversation by like like switching out and looking at your phone but i'm gonna circle back to what you said about like you know like all of this knowledge that you get from grief right from the loss it's like someone comes in and puts like just boxes and boxes and boxes of information in your house And it's like a discovery period, right? And some people ignore those boxes, but there's so much information in our grief that you have to sit through and you have to sort and you have to go, what does this mean? What did that mean? You know, like what, like, you know, what you're doing with this podcast, what I, what I've done with a book is like a process of like sitting there and taking the information and using it in a practical application of like, changing our lives or living in a certain way so that we are present in the moment. Yeah. It's a really interesting way to hear it put at, I've actually never heard like that analogy, but another thing is I'd say a lot of those boxes are so, so fucking painful. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Uh, so yeah, it's like you're, you're truly, you're faced with so much adversity, so much resistance, so much pain mentally, emotionally. Yeah physically, spiritually, you know, that's why like, it's like you, you can't possibly be the, the same person you were before experiencing that. Did you experience the social reorder that happens with grief? Like, did you notice that your friend groups changed that or that you noticed the people who showed up and then the people who didn't show up, you started being okay with? Yeah, and absolutely. And I think in some ways also you do like your own accounting of who are the people I really need in my life and who are the people that are there for me and who are the people that are, that are in my circle that are adding value, not necessarily to my life, but, but in my life as a collective, 
where mm-hmm. it's, you know, a two-way street. There were some friendships right away that I'm like, yeah, it's very difficult, I think, because also like when my dad died when I was 20, mm-hmm. still really at that point where like going out, getting shit-faced is like the, <laughs> the exciting thing. And I'm like, yeah. I was in college. I was like, get me out of school. Yeah, I want to finish school. I want to help provide for my mom. Mm-hmm. And it's challenging being around a bunch of 20-year-olds who the most important thing in their life in that moment is what they're doing Saturday night. Right. And for me, you know, I had a whole baggage or as you put it, boxes that I'm trying to work through. Absolutely. There was a lot in terms of a lot of navigating as it relates to friendships, relationships, mm-hmm. etc. There were plenty of people that were really there for me that mm-hmm. maybe surprised me how they supported me. Mm-hmm. And there were also plenty of people who <laughs> you somewhat maybe were surprised at how they weren't there for you or the yeah. stupid things they said. <laughs> the, I, my favorite thing are, were the stupid things that people would say. <laughs> Just like, yeah, that, that thing of people not knowing what to say. And I now I can now look back at some of the things I, I oh my God, my sister's never going to listen to this, but I remember her showing up at Matt's memorial and saying, Oh, the parking was just terrible. <laughs> I just went, what? <laughs> what? I just, what? <laughs> I, I can laugh at it now after many therapy sessions, but like. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's also like people say crazy shit and trying yeah. to. Because I think typically it's like they don't know what to say. It's very uncomfortable. Like there's something that someone told me where it's stuck in my head and I'm certain like I've never brought it up with that person, (laughs) but I'm certain like they have no idea what they said. Yeah. That like I internalize it as that was really crazy that you even said that. Uh (laughs) They probably just went on living their day. I think the things that bothered me most were the instant promises of reincarnation, the, (laughs) the love and light the hashtag RIPs, how we interact with grief through social media is enough to like make me, I, I mean, I cleared most of my accounts just going, I, I can't be on this form. You know, people don't know what to say. Like the best thing was a, a trauma counselor who just said, this is shit. Mm. And it is one of the clearest things that I've said. And I remember saying it again at David's memorial saying, just looking at, like standing in front of his community and going, this is shit. There's no other way to describe this moment right now other than this is really shitty. What I wish for people is to change that pressure to say something. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters how you say it. And I think that if people approached like the bereaved slower and spoke to people just slightly slower mm. because you're experiencing the world slower. Just come down to my speed for just one second and say, I'm very sorry. And then move on back to your speed. Yeah. You could say, say in the same way, I really like grilled cheese and then move <laughs> forward. Or <laughs> yeah, did you watch the white Lotus? And then yeah, just slowing, slowing just things down. Slow it down. I did. I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about David? Because um, I'd love yeah. to cover that a little bit. Yeah. David was 
enough for me to make a huge life change, right? We meet people where all of a sudden, I, you know, I'd always thought that I'd landed in New York. And I was like, okay, one day I'll live in New York. And then I fly to California, I meet David and I go, California, this is it. I'm going to go, I'm going to be with David. I'll, you know, like sell my stuff. I'll get my green card. I got my green card, haven't sold my stuff yet because of the pandemic. He just changed my life and then where I was orienting towards. And magnetic, wonderful. He fell in a state where I don't want, I don't even want to label it, but he fell in a place where he was very close to the cracks of society. And he, it happened very quickly and he lost, he didn't secure his medical insurance. And, you know, I was sort of clocking it while dealing with things here because I was back and forth between Toronto and California. And I was just watching slowly, just picking up on things that were happening. And um, I flew down to LA because I was going to like move and he was in San Francisco. So I flew up to San Francisco for a weekend and I just sort of picked up on this, on his state, on his mental state and he was not well. And I tried my best to navigate him out of that, to let it, it, him breathe, to, to just open him up, pump some levity into his disposition, break the tension as comedians do. And, you know, we had a interesting, difficult weekend together. And he walked me to the subway park one morning and I was flying back to LA and recommitted to our relationship, told him that this is where partnership begins for me. And, you know, offered to marry him, fly him to Canada. So he had healthcare and after I left, he, he completed suicide. Wow. And so I was in LA when I found out and that was five months after Matt died. And that's was when I, you know, the, the point of no return in your life, right? You start to get to these moments of where you, where things could have gone real bad, real bad for me. And it was just little simple things like a phone call from Matt's dad saying, Hey, don't worry. It's going to be okay. And um, a call from his community in San Francisco saying, Hey, come up this weekend. We want you to be here. We want you to be a part of this. You know, you belong with us. Come and let's heal together. And so I, I returned to San Francisco. I didn't bypass David's death. I didn't return to Toronto and pretend nothing happened. I went back and I confronted it and walked through that hellscape again. And I did it with some of the most incredible, sensitive, emotionally present people. And we formed this beautiful community in David's absence of support. And it saved my life. Wow. So five months is like really not in such a short time period. Yeah. What was the thing that maybe surprised you the most in those like following? Because such a short time period, you're still you're still grieving Matt. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're still navigating your your loss and you know your grief really never ends, but it's mm. still so fresh, it's still so recent. Mm. What enabled you to like keep going, just wake up in the morning? 
and get out of bed. You know, like that's. I made a commitment to Matt that I would not like that in a, in a conversation, a very private conversation, but I made a commitment to Matt that I would, I would do my best to persevere. And so that I had to get help because after David died, that is when I started time traveling. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like as artists, we sort of uh, romanticize how we're going to lose our minds, right? Is it going to be like, you know, like that's part of our process and to be like, oh yeah, if I go crazy, it'll go this way. I didn't think that I would start slipping as my body's relationship to time and space fractured. So, you know, I didn't know, I would go to bed and not know where I was waking up. Was I in LA? Was I in Toronto? Was I in San Francisco? Was I in New Brunswick where Matt's memorial was? And that's when I had to seek, like I had to start doing the heavy lifting, which is like really listening to myself and going, okay, you've got to get grounded. You always have to know where North is. If you lose yourself, oh, at least know where North is. That's, that's as simple as it is. And then I started losing the language part of my brain. I started experiencing aphasia. So I started taking Spanish classes so that I could like rivet, like, one, two, three, four, with uno, dos, tres, cuatro, and started rebuilding that stuff up. I started taking Gaga and praying. And that is something as an atheist that I never thought I would ever do. Mm-hmm. But really sitting in the comfort of like symbology and metaphor. And it was an investigation. Like it turned into a full-time job just to drop down listen to myself, what is happening in my body, and then finding a creative solution to it. One thing, I guess, going backwards, like it's really great that you knew that you needed to get help. Yeah. It sounds like you had a community to lean in on. Yeah. And get support from. Mm -hmm. Do you have a relationship with your your family? Were they able to help you or? Mm, My birth family, they don't, they're never going to change. Mm. And that's okay, because that that's something queer people deal with all the time, right? Like that, that's just part of our story. And so we make family. And that for me is, is the light, is that my queer experience is a lot of like, this person is like a mother to me. Matt was like was my ex-husband, but he wasn't my ex. And so we put all the distance in our relationships, right? My friend is like my sister. It's all comparison. And part of this process for me was dropping the comparisons, dropping the distance and saying, that person is my mother and I'm allowed two mothers. And that person is my sister and I'm allowed two sisters. And Matt was my husband and David was my fiance, was my lover. And that for me was a huge step because it was me saying I can as part of rebuilding is that I can, I can have these supports. I can have a mother. I can, you know, if I lost my mother, I can have a mother. We get to have these shifting relationships with people. Mm. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine, you know, it's, it's difficult because it's almost like you've lost your birth family in many mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have the support, you know, of, mm-hmm. of your birth family. And I understand you're saying, you know, this is something that 
I've dealt with my whole life, but that still has to be, I imagine, very difficult. Yeah, it is. And that's one of the statistics that I talk about of overcoming. Mm. Because when the shit hits the fan, who shows up for you? That's the question. It's not so much about having like, I don't have a mom or I don't have a dad. It's just who shows up for me. Mm. Does that make sense? Did I answer your, or did I just totally have? No, no, that that makes complete sense. And it's something you talk about in the memoir. I talk about non-binary relationships in the book. What is family? What is chosen family? That process of like coming out of isolation, right? That's gay trauma. Gay trauma is isolation. It's Mm. saying at a young age, you're rejected, right? And so you go through life saying that I don't deserve community or I don't deserve love or I don't deserve to be, I don't deserve a support system. And then this wonderful sort of icing that comes over it is this idea of resilience, right? Queer resilience. I'm resilient. I pay my rent. I have this. I have my career. But it will be tested. And I I was tested. And the beautiful thing is that there were people who caught me. Mm. And those people, I thank them for my life. Because what happens to so many queer people, oh my God, I'm getting emotional right now, God, is that we just fall through the cracks. Mm. And when your entire family evaporates overnight, who's there to catch you? Yeah. I'm sitting here emotional as well because this is not a topic or theme that I've covered and I've recorded well over 90 of these now, but I appreciate you opening up about this, obviously, but it's so interesting to me because going into this podcast, we had talked Mm -hmm. prior and we spoke about you have these two significant losses in your life Mm -hmm. and I want to cover and uncover what happened and Mm -hmm. discuss your, your own grief journey. But it's almost like, you know, you have three significant losses that Mm -hmm. you have to navigate. Yeah. I'm almost at a loss of words. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's this idea of recovery that I'm sitting with is that the goal of any recovery is to just build a good life worth losing again. And that's where I think creativity saved me. My life as an artist has saved me is that I get I know that I can create family. I know that I can create a home. I know that I can create community. And I know that I can create beauty out of nothing. And so that's the challenge. That's where I'm at right now is going, okay, I have the tattoos. I have the, I have the stories. I have this, I have, I have the photos. I have everything. Okay. Start again. How has your own adversity shaped your life into how you're living it today? Hmm. I think that Matt's passing was what I call the one degree shift, right? I was carrying around all of this material, right? All the, the crap that would like fuel my jokes or how I thought it would have to be like the trauma of childhood, the, you know, all the, all the stuff that like builds up and you have to imagine that you're on a pier, right? And you see a bunch of people all on the pier beside you. Everybody's on their separate pier. And you're in front of this beautiful, gorgeous sunset. And my life was like, I was standing in front of this gorgeous sunset, but I had all these garbage bags piled up. 
And I was constantly comparing like myself to somebody else on their peer. And their, their view is completely wide open, but my view was obstructed. And Matt's passing was just like me taking a shift. Just, it wasn't like a, a 180 turn where I had, I looked completely different. I just looked to the side and I finally saw the sunset. I finally saw what other people were seeing because that trauma, everything else didn't matter anymore. And that to me is the grace of what I've been through is that I get to, yeah, I can still see all, all the, like all the crap that has happened to me in my life in the periphery, mm. but I get to see what other people are seeing now. Got it. We can start to wrap up the yeah. show. I think that's a great, a great place to end it. Yeah. The 1% shift. Where can our listeners find you, connect with you, buy the memoir? Yeah, uh, the memoir is available anywhere. Uh, it's in, I think, 17 countries, wherever books are sold. It's in audiobook format, ebook, paperback. All my handles are at Sean Hitchens. Uh, my website is seanhitchens.com. I'm slowly getting my social media back together after it was obliterated. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, for opening up, yeah. for being vulnerable with me the last hour. Yeah. I'm really excited to share your story with our audience. Oh, thanks, friend. It's lovely to meet you and talk to you. Likewise. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you like this episode, please take a minute, share with a friend, subscribe and leave a review if you leave a review i will be sure to call you out give you a shout out before the next episode drops i love your podcast this is gold this is where it's at Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.